This episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by our friends at WCScreens.com, the banner sponsor for the entire 2023 season. If you have needs with screen printing, embroidery, or more, please check out our pals at West Coast Screen Printing and Embroidery at WCScreens.com. They have nationwide shipping and wholesale pricing. Not only are they big supporters of this podcast, but like you, they are also diehard fans of the Fighting Irish. So where are they at? WCScreens.com. And on with the show. Today on Onward to Victory, I welcome someone who, as far as the journalistic coverage of Notre Dame athletics, and particularly football, is concerned, can only be described as a luminary and visionary. Yes, indeed, very special guest Len Clark will be joining the show today. And I'd hazard a guess that you're probably familiar with Len's work. But regardless, there are few people I know who can cut straight to the essence of Notre Dame football through storytelling quite like Len. So buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and I am so happy you are here today with me. And I thank you for that, because I have something very special for you today. On the show here today, episode number 87, I am joined by Irish journalist, famed Irish journalist at that, Len Clark. And as I mentioned in show lead, if you follow the current Fighting Irish, you probably have a good sense of of Len's work. But if you aren't, just let me share it with you straight. He's a guy who has a wide breadth of experience covering Notre Dame football in particular, but also other Notre Dame athletics. And that's just a couple stops along his long and storied career. And I will just say it uh, because I kind of allude to it in our conversation, which you're going to hear about soon. Len is soulful. And he is, the word I like to use anyway, is perceptive. And he takes kind of traditional storytelling and has become quite famous for, honestly, is emerging traditional storytelling with emerging media. And he actually gets to that in our conversation, which again, I am so excited for you to hear. But just so I can kind of give Len a bit of a proper introduction, uh, Len is from Portage, Indiana. So the region, Northwest Indiana. He initially studied broadcasting at Vincennes University in Vincennes, Indiana, before getting a graduate degree in communication arts at the University of Notre Dame. He would ultimately get his Ph.D. in organizational management at Indiana Tech, great city, it's in Fort Wayne, Indiana, but he's been covering Notre Dame football on and off since 1987. As he'll share soon in our conversation, he had an internship 
with the Indianapolis Colts. He worked with the esteemed Westwood One in 2000. And he has covered Notre Dame football full-time since 2009. He's also carved out quite a career as a college professor where he has instructed at Kentucky Wesleyan, Indiana State, Virginia Tech, the University of Evansville, and, of course, Notre Dame itself. In 1996, Len received the Sagamore of the Wabash Award for his contributions in broadcast journalism. The Sagamore of the Wabash Award is something that is awarded from the governor to individual citizens, and it is one of the highest honors that a Hoosier can earn. And I suppose, finally, Len Clark is a friend of mine, and I suppose just an all-around good person. I kind of try to touch on this in our conversation, but I've always approached this podcast somewhat humbly. I, I honestly would never thought or expect, I guess, anyone of elevated stature, I'll just say, to give me the time of day, and that's fine. Uh, but Len's never been like that. He's, he's very kind to myself. Uh, he asks about my family. He asks about how everything's going down here in Richmond, Indiana. He is just a very, very inclusive person, and I will always admire the hell out of him for that. So, without further ado, my conversation with Len Clark, coming right up after this. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And as I mentioned in show lead, a very, very special guest joining the show today. Just so you know, again, this guest is brought to you by our pals at West Coast Screen Printing and Embroidery. You can visit them at wcscreens.com. I am joined here by the esteemed Len Clark. And Len is... He's synonymous with Notre Dame football. His work covering Notre Dame football is omnipresent. It's ubiquitous. Len, can't you tell I'm just trying to use all the big words in my in my own personal lexicon here? Len, so happy to have you. Thank you for joining the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited about it. You made my day. Well, I'm happy. I You're making ours, Len, by making some time to be with me here tonight. So I guess we don't talk as much about the current editions of the Irish on this show. We were kind of more of a history podcast, but since I got you here, how are you feeling about the 2023 Notre Dame fighting Irish? Well, I'm a history guy myself, but I can tell you, I am very excited about this team. I have not had this feeling since I was nine years old back during the 1973 season. And it's brought back a lot of emotions. It's brought back a lot of feelings that I thought went away when I became an adult, if I am an adult, but really excited about this team. A lot of it has to do with J.D. Bertrand, really got to know his family. And unfortunately, that last second loss to Ohio State has kind of put a little blemish on it, but it's not where you start. It's where you finish. And I appreciate that perspective. And J.D., he's a he is a heck of a ball player. He is an absolute treat to watch. Len, we don't have a whole lot of guests on this show, and so when we do, it's oftentimes a very special one like yourself, and I always start by asking the same question of all of them. What is the spirit of Notre Dame to you? The spirit of Notre Dame to me, it's a mindset, and I'm reminded of it every time I go back onto campus, and you felt this as well, regardless 
if you went to school there or not. Because Notre Dame, as I tell people, there was an old adage that used to say, the sun never set on the British Empire. The only organization entity in the world today where that is true, where there is a global footprint, it's the University of Notre Dame with their global gateway education programs and their alumni that are scattered throughout the world. But it's a state of mind where when you step on campus or you represent the university or you represent yourself with that affinity of Notre Dame behind you, it's to do better than you think you can. I think that really embodies the Notre Dame spirit. It's it's like the American dream. It's you come here and you want to make the most of that experience. And I think it's best summarized by the early immigrants, the Catholic immigrants that came over that identified with Notre Dame, not even knowing where the school was. But here's that little school that had that can do attitude that was beating the elite powers of the East. And it gave them a sense of hope. So Notre Dame, to me, the spirit, it's a mindset, but it's also hope knowing that there are groups of individuals and entities that are going to make this a better world. Thank you for sharing that. I think it was Joe Theismann who once said, if you could bottle up the spirit of Notre Dame, it could light up a, an entire universe. I appreciate the fact that you dovetailed back to the humble origins because Notre Dame has grown into something that I don't think Father Soren could have even envisioned. <laughs> or perhaps he did. He was indeed a visionary. But that beacon of hope, as you mentioned, to a, a largely disenfranchised people, that is like just in the sewn in the fabric of Notre Dame, and it will never go away. And I appreciate that, Len. Thank you. Now, we were talking kind of before off air, and you'd mentioned that you first covered, or you covered your first Notre Dame game in 1987. So I just have to ask you, and you've covered tons of Notre Dame football since, of course. But what is your most memorable moment or game, for that matter, covering Notre Dame football? And what made it stand out to you? It's a good question. I think there are a couple of games that really stand out, in my opinion. Actually, the first game that I ever attended was in 1972 against Missouri. Mm. Notre Dame lost. And I was at that game because I have a first cousin, and he was recruited heavily by ERA, but ended up going to the University of Missouri. He redshirted that year, and so he had a chance to come home and sit in the stands, and I sat with him. It was raining in the second half. Tom Pagna, the great assistant coach under Eris, said it was probably the toughest defeat that they've ever experienced. And I can remember it raining, and I think the rain hid my tears. Even though I was happy for my cousin that his team won, I think the rain hid my tears, but no, I didn't cry. So that is a memorable game. Obviously, the 1987 game at Purdue, it was the first game I ever covered as a media person. And I can remember going into the locker room at the south end of Ross State Stadium, Lou Holtz talk, and then we got to actually go into the locker room, you know, where the players were getting dressed and everything. And two things stood out to me in that game. One, there was a player named Tony Rice who actually got in a couple of plays because the quarterback, Terry Andrasak, got knocked out. And the other thing that stood in my mind was quarterback Terry Andrasak. And I was mesmerized because he was tying a tie without looking in a mirror. Oh, that is pretty good. <laughs> and that's when the players used to wear their sport coats and the ties. And then uh, the third one would have to be last season, the Clemson game. And we were on the field and then the fans stormed. 
Now, my girlfriend lives in Ireland, and she was at the game with me, and I got her in the press box. And so the fans stormed the field. I said, grab onto me and don't let go. And we were about 10, 15 yards from the tunnel entrance to go into the media room. When we got to the media, ent- or right to the entrance of the tunnel, I was able to you know, see her because it was a sea of humanity. And she told me, she goes, my feet haven't touched the ground in 15 minutes. So she was crunched and then elevated above everybody else, but hanging on to me. So those are the games. But I have to say, for me, the most memorable game is the next game. So I'm hoping Louisville will be the next memorable game for me. Len, well, I have to tell you, just before we move on, I was also at the 2022 Clemson game. And whereas I am like, I'm known to bend the rules a little bit here and there. My (laughs) wife, Alicia, does not. And we were driving up to South Bend to that Clemson game and we were spur of the moment. We got tickets to go. So we just went. And I told Alicia, I said, Hey, if Notre Dame wins this football game, we're going down on the field. And she was convinced that if we did that, we were going to get arrested or, or something I'm like, no, 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 it'll be cool. That game was just absolutely epic. You know, it was kind of Ben Morrison's, you know, coming out party, but it was very obvious at some point, once you saw start seeing the Clemson fans leaving from that corner of the stadium, you're like, you know, I was waiting for the other shoe to drop, but I was thinking, okay, we might just have this one in the bag. So I'm like, Alicia, we're going down. And that was one of the coolest experiences ever. It's dangerous because afterwards I talked to one of the ushers because I saw a girl on a stretcher. She had broke her leg. And I talked to the usher and he goes, we've had four of those oh. after the game. So fans, if you rush the field, listen to the ushers. They're going to let you down on the field because I was standing right next to Jack Swarbrick. When an usher came up and he said, you know, let him come down, make everybody safe. You know, we don't want people to, you know, dive off and get crazy. But, you know, it's one of those phenomenons in college football that everybody's going to rush the field. If you're going to do it, don't rip the goalpost down and just enjoy it. (laughs) Be courteous, be safe. I hope there'll be more opportunities for Notre Dame to have that done this year. So, Len, as you were speaking about your favorite games and college football in general, it just reminds me, and I and I mentioned this, and I have so much respect for you and your work, and not only just covering Notre Dame football, but also like you know how perceptive you are, and of course, you kind of showed some showed us some of that when we were talking about what is the spirit of Notre Dame to you. So, I have one that I really want to ask you, and I'm really curious what your thoughts are. And that is, how has the landscape of college football and specifically Notre Dame football changed over the years since you began covering it? Well, the game has gotten bigger and faster. It takes your breath away. When when the media is allowed down on the field for the last five minutes, it's a much different experience than watching it on television, even from the stands. Because when you're down there, the noise, the size of the players, just the ferocity and the hitting, I mean, it takes your breath away. And it's like, wow, this this can only be done by a small percentage of individuals. And you just wonder, you know, these are 18 to 22-year-old kids, now up to 25, 26 with NIL <laughs> and the COVID years. But the game has definitely changed from when I was a kid where – you know, the, the, the college players would go back home in the summer and have a job that they would work at and then be encouraged to work out. But it's, unfortunately, it's become a business. I try to not follow it as enough because Notre Dame football is the last 
the last piece of something that I don't want it to taint my 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 experience and my joy. I worked for the Indianapolis Colts during the strike year of 1987 as an intern. And uh, the one thing that I found out when I was with them, I went in as a fan and I learned it was a business where if a player was hurt, there was no empathy. It was, can the player perform? If they can't, he's gone. And so loyalty, it wasn't there. It's, it's a business. College athletics is a business. Now there are a lot of things going on at Notre Dame that I wish they would not do but the landscape has changed it is what it is and if notre dame wants to compete then they're going to have to hopefully lead from the front as opposed to trying to play catch up and do it the right way but you know the one thing i'll tell you is it's 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 about the dollar on fridays before the game they have the tunnel open it used to be free for people to go down and have that connection to notre dame you know, to get their picture taken, you know, right before they step out onto the field. And a couple of years ago, a friend of mine on the Wake Forest Radio Network asked me to come over and help them set up their equipment. It was their first time there. And I think it was like 2016 or so. And I said, yeah, I'll come over. And as we were walking back from their locker room, I had to go into the tunnel. And I saw this guy, he had to be about 100 years old. And he looked distressed. I mean, he's crying. And I thought something's wrong. I got to help this guy. And I went up to him and I said, sir, are you okay? And he looked at me and he goes, I've waited my whole life to come here. Now, I walk by that Newt Rockney gate many times every week. I don't walk by it without thinking of that guy now. And it's, it's, it's humbled me where I cannot think about that individual. And so with all the changes, I think that's the one thing that has brought me back down to ground zero to say, hey, what can we do to make it better experience even though we're in this whole new realm this whole new world that we don't know how it's going to play out thanks Len. that's that's a great bit of insight and one of the things that i thought they used to do that are really that was really special and i had the opportunity to do it before they stopped doing i think it was end up being a covid casualty and maybe they just never brought it back the stadium tours do they Um, they i i think they do it on special circumstances but now the tunnel is open i think you have to pay ten dollars to go down there and it's like Hey, I know COVID years cost them some money, but my biggest concern is the development of the next generation of Notre Dame fans. I mean, I'm a first generation college student, Catholic kid from the Rust Belt, you know, growing up in the Gary, Indiana area. And Notre Dame was the dream. But I think it's sometimes referred to as a country club, you know, and the kid who lives two miles from the stadium is really not encouraged to come on campus. I hope that that's not the case. And I think with the new hiring of the basketball coach, they're going to open up their arms to bring people in uh, from the inner city of South Bend. But that's my concern is that you'll see kids in, you know, downtown South Bend wearing Michigan shirts or anything you can buy at the, the, the Myers and the Walmarts and that stuff. And I'm hoping that, You'll see more Notre Dame shirts that they'll recognize them and say, we want you to be a part of the future. It's hard because of the university selectivity, the endowment, however you want to look at it. It's obviously an elite university, but has it adopted too much of that elitism? I and you kind of do indeed get that sense. And sometimes, yeah, without getting too far deep into that, I appreciate you bringing it up. And 
it can be discouraging because I think I think there is a sense of that. And hopefully the basketball coach, because I know he's got a quite a couple, quite a few South Bend guys uh, that he's pursued and he's he's and know, he coached there before. Of course. And not for nothing. Here's my shameless Richmond plug. The listening audience knows I'm down here in Richmond. Coach Micah Shrewsbury's brother-in-law is the head coach at Richmond High School. And so, yeah, so around these parts, we happen to be good friends with his wife, Monica. Uh, So Monica is Micah's sister. And so around here, we could we just call him Uncle Micah and Cousin Braden. So (laughs) my son Grayson sent uh, Monica and Billy. I know I'm getting a little inside with this story, but Monica and Billy have a son who's I've coached in basketball the last couple of years and Grayson gave him six quarters, a whole dollar 50 on a recent trip that he went up to South Bend to see uh, uncle Micah and cousin Braden. And uh, he came back with uh, autographs uh, from, from both. <laughs> so, and then he had <laughs> six quarters back, but, uh, but anyways, uh, yeah, we got to give some love to the Notre Dame basketball program. Cause I've seen a lot of great basketball programs and games there as well. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unheralded. And you know what? Onward to victory has never really quite tackled the basketball program. We've done baseball, but basketball is it's, it's right for the picking around these parts. So maybe we do need to do that one of these days. So uh, who are some of the most influential coaches, players, or figures in Notre Dame football that you've had the privilege to interact with? Well, I'll go back to saying I knew I was an adult when my heroes changed. Now, a couple of them stayed from kids. Growing up, I idolized Derek Parsegian. I had a chance to meet him when he was recruiting my cousin. And I met him at a basketball game because Era always determined a player's athleticism by the way they played basketball. And I had a cousin had knee surgery. That's why he redshirted at Missouri. But he would call my aunt and say, tell Tom he can't play basketball. <laughs> and I think that's one of the reasons is Tom ended up, you know, being all sectional and wanted to play for his team in his school. And that kind of rubbed him the wrong way. And then his recruiting trip was only an hour long as opposed to Missouri when he was there the whole weekend. You know, they thought a Catholic kid from Northwest Indiana was a shoe in. But obviously era. And I got a chance to meet him because there was a player on the 66 national championship team that was a walk-on and was from my hometown Mm. and through tom reynolds i got to meet a lot of my heroes now i was still a young young kid and i don't remember too much about it so the 73 team of course era was coaching and my favorite players back then were eric pennick and i've got his book right here i'm just reading it right now Uh, obviously immortalized with that 85 yard touchdown run toward the north end zone Tom Clements, who I thought was a point guard on the field. But then the older I got, you know, my heroes changed. My heroes today are single mothers or people who are, you know, trying to do their best and under trying circumstances. But so the two heroes that I still have as an adult are Air Parsegian and Father Hesburgh, mm-hmm. who I had a chance to meet and interview a couple of times. But um, the recent players, it would have to be J.D. Bertrand because of the Ireland connection. J.D.'s dad, an American, grew up in Dublin. And when he was recruited, a recruiting analyst called me up and he said, hey, you've got to meet J.D. Bertrand's dad. He grew up in Dublin, and I know you spent a lot of time over there. And we hit it off. And my ritual during the game is Jim and Christine, his parents, are sitting in the stands, and I do a screenshot of the stats, and I text it to them so they can see the stats. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, But, you know, J.D.'s brother was a baseball player at Notre Dame as well. And I think, and you're the history guy, I don't think there's been 
a pair of brothers who have been captains in two different sports. Now I know the Bergen brothers from Peru That's right. might have been football only, but on two different teams, I think you'd be the guy to research that. I, I will make a note of that, Len. Nothing comes that's to mind. This, that's, why this, that's why this year is really special to me is it's probably JD's last year. Now he has another year due to COVID, but there's so much talent that it's time for him to move on after this year. You know, he's going to be 25 years old. It's, time to go out in the world and do what you want to do. He's already got a master's degree. Right. And uh, it's the thing about NIL is all these players come in early. You can walk out with a doctorate by the time you get done with your eligibility. <laughs> but, you know, it's been really special. And it, it, it it's kind of given me, as I said, that feeling of going back to when I was a kid and with Sam Hartman, who was a lot of the characteristics of being a field general like Tom Clements. And then you have the big breakaway players like an Audric Estime, who is – kind of like a reminiscent player of Eric Pennick. And then you've got the heart and soul of the defense, uh, you know, J.D. Bertrand, the, the same mindset and grit as a Frank Pomerico, and, and who was an offensive guard, though. But um, it, it's just kind of given me that excitement, and I can't wait for the next game. I have to ask you, because uh, you brought him up, Father Hesper, what was it like being in his presence? Well, it's a funny story how I interviewed him the last time. I was actually at the old Morrison before the renovations. And there was a picture of Father Hesburgh, if you remember that, at the entrance. And I was waiting for somebody, and I was just staring at the picture. And all of a sudden, the picture started talking. It was a reflection of Father Hesburgh, who was behind me. And he said something, how are you doing today? And I was so taken aback. And his secretary got a kick out of it. She goes, you thought the picture was talking to you? And I said, I did. And she goes, you gave me the best laugh of the day. Is there anything I can do to you, for you? And I said, I'd really love to interview him. And I think this was two years before he died. And I think he died in 2015. So this is like 2013. And so I made the appointment and my mother's a florist. So I brought flowers to the secretary and I had a chance to spend about 20 minutes with him. And I was doing my PhD at the time and I was in a leadership program and I talked to him about leadership. At the end, I did, I forgot to take a picture with him. So I ran back in there and I got a picture, not the greatest picture in the world. But at the end, I walked out and, I, and it hit me. And I said, I just shook the hand of a man who has shaken the hand of every president since Eisenhower and every pope going back to, well, who was the pope back in the 50s? Oh, yeah, <laughs> before, his, before, his, before Pope Paul VI, you know. Yes, so. right. <laughs> and I was like, should I wash my hand? <laughs> it just shows you you know, what a small world it actually is and the separations of, you know, especially with the Notre Dame community, you'll say, do you know somebody? And then you'll find out that there's a common connection. And that's, what's really been exciting, especially with the Ireland trip past August, but there's always a story. And that's why I like to hang out at Augie's locker room before the games, because I like meeting people like you who have been coming back to campus for their hundredth time or, especially meeting somebody who's been coming to their first game and setting foot on campus for the first time. And I always ask the kid, was it what you expected? Some say it would have exceeded it. Others will say it's a lot smaller than I thought. It's television doesn't do it justice. And then they talk about that feeling of being on campus. And I've been to a college games all over the country at different schools. Nothing compares. And I don't know if that's because my first game was at Notre Dame and I was spoiled. But you can't compare a Notre Dame game day 
to others. Now, the others have their traditions and they're great. I lived in Nebraska for a while and it's a great, if you're going to rob a bank in, in Nebraska, do it on a game day Saturday because nobody's working. They're watching the game. We're at the stadium. <laughs> but it, it, I just couldn't get into it. It's it's not the same. You know, and you mentioned Augies and uh, that's that's uh, where we initially met. I, I known known your work for so many years and I remember one time I walked in there and I, I befriended Augie because Frankly, Augie will befriend anyone and everyone who walks in, and that's just kind of the person he is. But so I, I remember walking in, and I was thinking, "That's Len Clark." Uh, and so I think I mustered, and this was probably at this point, Len, six, seven years ago, but uh, maybe not quite that long. But I remember I, I talked to you, and I remember asking you, like, "What? Why are you so passionate about Notre Dame in particular?" Like, let's like cut right to it. And I remember you told me something that you just said not ten minutes, twelve minutes ago. And Remind that me. just that. No, but it was just that when you said that, I was like, it, it rang a bell in my head where you said this is this is one of the last pure things that I believe yeah. is. out. Yeah. And so when you said that, I was like, oh, my gosh, that took me right back to the first time I met you. Because I can't go back and experience my first game again. I can live vicariously through others. And so I get a kick when people come in and you can see them beaming or. At Augie's a couple of years ago, Chris Zorich came in and signed some autographs. And I remember meeting an individual from my, my home area. And, you know, here's a guy, six foot four, played football, and he's scared. And I said, he's just another guy. Just go shake his hand. And he was like, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, that's Zorro. <laughs> but, you know, it just shows you this, uh, you know, how passionate people are and you know, when you get people on the same frequency, that's where the magic happens. So speaking of campus, what's your favorite spot or favorite spots on Notre Dame's campus? Well, when I was a student, there was my bed, you know. But... <laughs> yeah. No, it's just the traditional ones. You know, I need to get out during a game day and walk the campus. But I spend a lot of time over at Augie's and I'm usually running late. But I love to walk around and get a steak sandwich at the Knights of Columbus, visit the grotto, see the, the player walk from the Basilica now, which is bringing back the tradition. Indeed. Uh, but, you know, even even the huddle, you know, just the little places, but the out of place places that most people don't know about. And uh, at one time I'd go in the morning over at the law school and there's a little cafe they used to have. I don't know if it's there anywhere where you get a cup of coffee. Nobody knew about it. So you can sit there and kind of relax. But now it's in the basement of the, the library, so I can go in there and do some work, and there's not many people in there, so you can get done and have Wi-Fi or what have you. Right. <laughs> oh, no. But no, just I think any place on campus is special. No, I, I agree. So around here at Onward to Victory, we do a, we have an ongoing mini-series, uh, the iconic sites of Notre Dame, and uh, I try to pick some. I, well, I guess the first one was was the Hesburgh Library, the Word of Life mural. So that's about as mainstream as it gets. But the second one I did was the Presbytery, and uh, just how that building is is it sits there. It's like sandwiched. It's nestled in between the Grotto and the Basilica and the main building. And people walk by it almost just not thinking too much about it. But that's the building that you know Father Soren lived and died in. And you can you know rent those rooms out, and that's where he spent especially the last couple of decades of his life, some of his most contemplative times as he's probably pondering, you know, the future of his beloved university. And I just feel like it's like the, that's the building you got to walk around to, to wind around into the grotto. Or this. And so these places are everywhere. And when you think about just 
the sheer significance uh, of of some of these. Some of them are so unassuming. Yeah, that's why I like to give tours to people. And I've been lucky. I have a friend. He's a priest. He's he's over at Ireland now, but he used to run the Fatima Center at, in, at Notre Dame back in the 80s and 90s. But he retired and he's living at the Father Peyton Center, one of Notre Dame's most famous graduates. Oh, yeah. But uh, it was July and we were walking around one day and the film critic Roger Ebert was there and he goes, I've never been here. I have some people from France and I thought I'd take them to Notre Dame. And so we ended up giving him a tour and he invited us over to his summer home in Arbear, Michigan, which was owned at one time by Jumpin' Joel Savoldi, a famous Notre Dame football player. And so we went over and had Bastille Day dinner with Roger Ebert. <laughs> and it's once again that Notre Dame connections. But Another funny story, I was walking on campus and Bob Dylan was playing at the Morris Civic Center. Okay. And Bob was loves to walk on campus. So he was out there walking around and somebody goes, hey, that guy looks like Bob Dylan. <laughs> and I'm laughing. I was like, it is Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I've run into politicians and celebrities and it, it you, you, you never know who you're going to run into. And that's the, that's the funny thing. But I tell you, one of my favorite stories, they used to have the smokers on Friday night which would be a chance for, you know, speakers to come in and that went away. But I met these two guys and they came to every game and they flew out from San Diego. And I said, wow, that's incredible. And I said, where, where are your tickets at? And he goes, oh, we don't have tickets. We just want to come and hang out on campus. And we watched the game at the huddle. I was like, that's even more brilliant. I mean, that's fantastic. That's that's incredible. That's what my wife, she she often says, she's like, because we just, we try to do all the things before the game that oftentimes I hate to say it, but the the most fond memories you have is watching the band and watching the players walk and seeing all the sight. Not to say the the game's the worst part of going, but there's just so much to do, and it really speaks to what you say. Like it's just dripping with tradition everywhere well, you look. Well, that's why I think because the ticket prices are escalating, and depending on the big game. Yes, I have a friend. He's an Ohio State grad. Had season tickets, but he gave them up. He still tailgates. But they've got the big screen TV and he goes, I'm on campus. I got the best seat in the house. Got our own personal porta potty right there. I don't need to pay the ticket prices and I'm enjoying the experience. So I think that's one thing that you might see. And I know Notre Dame clamps down. You can't tailgate in the parking lots, but that's why they're buying up all the property around it. But somebody's going to come up with a way to have a fan experience. And, you know, you do with the the, tail, the buses that come in where you can be in the tent. But I still think busing in a huge, biggest TV in the world and sitting down with a group of people somewhere on campus or off campus or near campus is a way to do it in the future. Yes. Well, yeah, the tailgates are always always a good time. We tend to tailgate off camp uh, off campus. And and I, that's, I always stress, too, we're talking about fan experience. I always stress to people, especially if you have young families to do the spring football game. Just, oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's accessible. It's it's family friendly. The one year we went, they did like face painting and like caricatures. We had a one heck of a time. And I I said, well, we went this past year and we we're absolutely miserable because the weather was just, I don't know if you were, I'm sure you were there, Len, or, or perhaps you. Yeah, I was there. But I'm trying uh, to remember. It, so. Oh gosh, it was, it was sleeting the whole time. It was just the worst. It was the yeah, worst day yeah. ever for weather, but I mean, but even so, it's a it's a wonderful experience, um, you know, and it's it's very economical too. So moving forward, who is your very favorite Notre Dame football player of all time, and who is some of your favorites that have kind of that kind of fly under the radar, if you will? Well, going back to that '73 team, mm-hmm. 
No, I think Eric Pinnock. I, I've tried to talk to Eric about this to confirm it, but this is before social media. This is before 24-hour-a-day television, cable stations. So the news that I got were, was the newspaper or maybe a Sports Illustrated or Sport magazine. And I can't remember the magazine, but it talked about the hype. Anthony Davis and USC coming in to Notre Dame. Mm. And there were pictures of priests walking on posters of Anthony Davis that were taped on the sidewalks and they're walking on them. <laughs> but in the article, Eric Pinnock had talked about having a pet cat and he would study the moves of the cat. Now, cats weren't allowed in the dorms. Right. And but he had a cat and he would study its moves. And I said, I got to get a cat. That's why I'm a cat person. I went out and I got a cat and I was a young Pop Warner football player and I would study its moves and <laughs> get a cat to study. like Eric Pennick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but Tom Clements, the quarterback, and as I said, all these guys that I've had a chance to meet. You know, they they left an impression on a young kid mm. who was 56 miles away from campus. And as I said, this year's team, my favorite player has to be JD because you cannot find a better kid. His nickname in high school was the robot because he didn't make mistakes. He, and it was interesting. His dad, an American grew up in Dublin, played rugby because they didn't have football. And his dad wouldn't let them play rugby because it was too violent of a sport. But it's interesting. I talked to Jim about this. I said, you know, I, we don't get to see a lot of practices, but JD is the most mild mannered person you meet. But once he's between the lines, he's getting in fights. I mean, he's, he's, and Jim told me, he goes, I, I trained him that way. I said, when you're on that field, man, you go out there with all you've got. But when you're off, you become the nicest person in the world. And just the IQ, the football acumen, the, the, his his nutritional i mean the guy is a walking nutritionist mm. i mean he's he's an eagle scout i mean you can't you can't build a better story i mean he's jack armstrong all-american boy um and and it's funny there are three bertrand boys they're all eagle scouts and that just shows you now jim and christine are about my age you know just shy of 60 or 60 and She's a USC graduate. Oh, you're kidding. It, I didn't realize it, that. It just shows you, you know, being in the right environment and family and working toward a goal and the most humble people that you ever meet in your life. And I, that, I think that's why he's my favorite player because he's gone through some adversity, targeting and some of the injuries that he's fought through. But he gets a lot of flack on the message boards not being – fast enough or missing an assignment, but the guy was playing 60, 70 plays a game and you're going to have a bad play every once in a while. But as Notre Dame goes, the defense, I think it's predicated by J.D. Bertrand. And that's why I'm just happy to have a sort of connection to him this year. I think of any trite cliche, he's the heartbeat. He's the soul. He is a, he is that defense. He's the straw that stirs the drink. There's no question about that. And when he wasn't playing against central Michigan, you, you sensed it. Like, you know, when they play, like the, the defense just felt like they were a little out of sync all day long. 
my brothers and I, we do a lot of chatting during these these football games, and we were all in unison. We're all we would all die on the JD Bertrand Hill too. By the way, we love him. He's such a fantastic player. But as you say, he seems just like a wonderful teammate in person. But it was clear that that game he wasn't he wasn't there, and you could tell. And it's interesting you mentioned Eagle Scout because that just is again indicative to his level of commitment. People think of Eagle Scouts. I don't think a lot of people understand how much that entails and how much that requires. Now, I like Jack Kaiser, too, and I do have a Jack St- Kaiser story. My cousins grew up in the same area. They went to the same high school. So oh, my cousins uh, pioneer? Went to school with his, yeah, went to school with his parents. Oh, you're kidding. So, I mean, you talk about that connection. It's kind of interesting. But I do have a good story about Jack is, you know, Marcus Freeman has brought a fresh breath into the program. You know, Brian Kelly was a good coach. I personally, I never connected with him. You know, it was more of a business type of arrangement. Marcus gets it. You know it. You know, he's really embraced Notre Dame. And Brian Kelly left for the almighty dollar. And I just don't see Marcus Freeman doing that because of his passion mm-hmm. for Notre Dame. So there was a housekeeping lady who's from the same area as Jack Kaiser. And she went up to Marcus and said, you know, when do you want me to clean? And we're not supposed to be. And he's like, well, what do you mean? You know, my mother cleaned, you know, rooms and I helped her. And she goes, he goes, what can I do for you? And he, she goes, well, we're not supposed to talk to the players, but I'd really like to meet Jack Kaiser because he's from my home area. And he goes, what do you mean? You can't talk to the players? And she goes, no, we're not allowed to. And he goes, no, you go talk to him. Now, the funny story is she goes down to see Jack Kaiser. She opens the door and hits Jack in the head. Oh, Lord. <laughs> now, that's probably Brian Kelly might have been onto something. You know? Don't let anybody outside because you're going to get them hurt. But I thought that was a funny story. But Jack was OK. And, um, you know, I just another great story. Here's an Indiana kid, you know, playing at uh, the greatest football school in the country. And when I talk on Network Indiana, he's always one that I bring up because Mr. Football and you want to spotlight the kids from Indiana, you know, Blake Fisher and. The other kids from Indiana, you want to always talk about how they're doing. Yes. Yeah. And Jack, I love Jack Kaiser, too. He's easy to root for. And he was a fantastic high school uh, football player, as evident, of course, by when you think about the planer that that Mr. Football in Indiana kind of puts you on now. I mean, not to say it's, you know, it's at the height of Hoosier hysteria, Mr. Basketball in Indiana. But that Mr. Football in Indiana has it's big. Yeah, that was big, especially when you drive through Royal Center, there is no stoplight. But, you know, the first thing you see is state champion and, you know, Jack Kaiser. Yeah. And I did ask him, I said, hey, do you have an NIL deal with a Bobolink? Now, I hadn't been down there in a while. He's Bobo like, Link. that's back in business? I said, yeah, I've got the perfect thing for you. Call it the pick six and you get six different items, you know. <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> Glad you put that bug in his ear. It's the Bobolink, though. Yeah, You'll so. see those every so often. So Len, uh, so something else you're kind of noteworthy for, you're in uh, Dublin, Ireland quite frequently. If you if you follow Len on Facebook, you get to see kind of uh, take part in vicariously his adventures. And I love doing that, by the way. But can you tell us a little bit about planning these Ireland excursions? And this year's trip in particular looked really awesome. And you obviously put a lot of really hard work into it. And it seemed like everybody had such a great time. Can you tell us maybe some of your favorite Ireland memories? Well, thank you for letting me talk about that. Now, I had to reinvent. I'm a radio guy. My my background is radio. But I had to reinvent myself. So when the advent of the iPhone came out, I adapted it, and I became an early adopter of smartphone technology. 
And that's how I really began my connection with Ireland. Notre Dame was actually playing in 2012 in Dublin. And RTE, the national broadcaster, was also an early adopter. And I was working with a Canadian tech company. And I contacted the lead, uh, technical lead over there. And I said, hey, I'm going to be over there to cover the game. And he goes, well, come on over. We'll meet. So I went over and we actually planned the this worldwide gathering that went on from 2015 up until COVID called Mojo Fest. Mm. So that got me over there every year. And I met my girlfriend and had been going back every year. And I was teaching an online class in storytelling, multimedia at Michigan State. And I introduced a new tool that came out last fall called ChatGPT. And I said, and you can do things like write a guide to Dublin. And I was like, a guy to Dublin. So in February, after the football season, before spring ball, I went over with the idea of writing a guide, getting sponsorship, and then really using it as a tool to help people maximize their time and fun if they were going to the game. Mm. And it was embraced by the business community of Dublin. And one of the sponsors, the Celtic jeweler said, if it's anything like 2012, it's going to be Christmas 12 days in a row for us. And so I was able to go out and get a number of different sponsors. I used a program that I had not used in 12 years. I bought it and I never used it, which allowed me to make it interactive. I went out and got the Lord Mayor of Dublin to do a welcome, got the sponsors. I did have ChatGPT do some generic articles like education in Dublin, the restaurant scene or what have you but then all the sponsors were written by me mm. so do dublin bus the tour bus was very good and then the two big ones that really helped me out the most were slattery's bar and the bar which held our whiskey tasting and our podcast the day before the game at aviva stadium and so it's probably the best thing that i did professionally and then having a chance to see an irish win at Aviva Stadium, you know, made it even more special. But yeah, just working with the sponsors and actually hanging out in one of them and seeing Will Farrell and Dan Patrick walk by. And Incredible. and I ran over to Will and I said, I thought you were a USC guy. And he started laughing, you know, but um, ah, uh, got to give him some guff over that. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I got a lot of positive feedback on it. And I'm, I'm wondering if I should help out Georgia Tech and Florida State next year. But I became good friends with the people who were part of the Aer Lingus Classic. Aer Lingus, I have to say, was a great sponsor. They they got the airline flights for all of us to go over. So, I mean, everything just fell into place. And it was really the power of the Notre Dame brand. Now, we didn't ignore Navy. Navy has a strong connection to Ireland as well. And it was a whirlwind because I flew out the Tuesday before the game and I had to fly right back uh, that Sunday. So it was short and sweet, see the girlfriend, do the game, go home. <laughs> mm, yeah, right. And it was cool that they played Navy too. I mean, to be able to, to bring such a historic opponent to to such a in, incredibly cool venue and, and setting, I, I just thought that was just perfect. And I, I appreciate you sharing sharing your adventures too, because there you, you seem like you have an awful lot of fun over there len I oh i did and i have to mention our another good friend mark boyle from jameson who made the whiskey tasting possible as well so and the great thing about that sam hartman's parents and family was at the whiskey tasting no kidding and uh it was 
you know, just one of those magical things, you know, you're at the, one of the most iconic pubs in Dublin and you're talking Notre Dame football, having whiskey and sharing it with Sam Hartman's family. Dude, that is so cool. <laughs> so very cool. Oh, and forgot. And Guinness supplied two kegs, 96 pints at the, at the bar the next day. So we all throw in a plug for them as well. Oh gosh. <laughs> that sounds like too much fun. <laughs> Say the Guinness tastes better over there and it tastes better because it was free. Oh, it always does, but you're right. You're you're close to the source, you know. <laughs> That's awesome. So I have one more quick question here. But again, I, I'm here with Len Clark, and this is uh, Len's appearance today has been brought to brought to you by our friends at West Coast Screen Printing and Embroidery. You can visit them at wcscreens.com. Uh, don't don't forget to do that. Great, but- hey, great product. Great yes. t-shirts. I mean, if you're looking for it, it's part of the Notre Dame family. I mean, I've got a bunch of this stuff as well, and they do great work. I wish he was a little bit closer to us, but hey, it'll get you the next day. You know, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. And he's done work for our pal Tony Strand. He's done work for Onward to Victory. He's done work for our pal at uh, our pals at Augie's Locker Room. He's definitely made an imprint on on Notre Dame and and those I like that. He's made an imprint. I like yeah. that. Ooh, ooh. Didn't, yeah, that was unintentional. <laughs> but uh, I mentioned two words earlier, Len. I, I did it in jest, but I mentioned just omnipresent and ubiquitous. Your name is everywhere when it comes to covering Notre Dame football, and I think you are are internationally renowned, and I will say nationally beloved because kind of this conversation like knowing knowing how to cover the sport it, it's one thing and and knowing the ins and the outs and the names and the stats and this and that is one thing but the way you tell stories and, and the way and just how perceptive you are and connecting the past with the present it tickles a guy like me because I that's what I aspire to do as well but when I look at your big body of work Len there's just one, there's one other word I think of, and that is just tireless. Well, I appreciate that. No, those are well, kind words. Well, you I know. just have to ask you, what keeps you motivated? You know, I, you know it's, a, it's a very good question. And I think, I, I think Gail Sayers said it better than me when they asked him, you know, talk about your running style. He says, I run scared because I know somebody's going to catch me. Mm. And I think I'm in the same way is that I have embraced emerging media because Emerging media helps me do the things that I can't do. Now, I am not a scientific techie. I, I use the analogy, I'm a fighter pilot. I can fly the plane and drop the bomb, so I can't tell you how it's built. Mm. But coming from a radio background, we used to edit with razor blades and splicing tape, and I was terrible at it. So the first time I actually edited audio on a studio audio workshop, I saw it at a convention and I sat through the demonstration like five times because I was so mesmerized. It allowed me to do things that I could not do through my own talent. And so that's why in working with Jack Freeman, uh, a partner of mine, uh, we were always taking a piece of emerging media to introduce it to an audience to find out if this is something that can be used in mainstream coverage. So I've used a 360 camera. I've used the smartphone. I'm looking for that next tool. Uh, I was early adopter of Zoom. Notre Dame was a Zoom school. And I was teaching the multimedia class. And that's when live streaming came out on Periscope and Meerkat, two of the early platforms. 
And I had a couple of students in the class that worked in the athletic department. I said, ask him what the policy is on Meerkat and Periscope. And they came back to me the next day and they said, they want to know why you're talking about submarines. Oh, gee. And then the next month they had policies on where you can live stream, when you could live stream and how you could live stream. So I think I opened up the Pandora's box on that. But it's out of fear. It's if you do the same thing that everybody does, then what's how are you going to separate yourself? What has allowed me to carve a niche is one, you mentioned it. I, I love to talk about Notre Dame and meet people like you. And I think I'm the only probably media person that hangs out at Augie's to get that fix, if you will, to motivate you. You know, it's to me, it's not just punching to the time clock and just going there and doing the job. It's it's a 24-hour a day game day experience, you know. But merging media because of the fear is I'm scouring constantly what is the next tool. And I've been experimenting with TikTok lately. I know it goes for a younger demographic, but I need to experiment it. One if I'm going to continue teaching the next generation of storytellers, but it's also the time to help separate the organization that I represent to help them build a following and to be sustainable economically. Can I add one more thing that I think you have in your tool belt? For me personally, I think what you have going for you too, Len, is just that your kindness. And I'll give a real life example. And honestly, that's, that's something that folks don't forget. And my real life example of this, Len, is I've always kind of, I, I have this upstart podcast and yeah, sure. I've been going at it for a few years and I just, I've never assumed it's just kind of a humble thing, I guess. I want to tell the story of Notre Dame. I, I want to do these kinds of things. And so I do this, I do that, but then I also do this really big thing. Uh, another big part of my life is researching Negro Leagues baseball. Yeah, so yeah. I meet you at, at Augie's locker room and we have a, a conversation. It was a great conversation. I assumed, and then we connected on Facebook. And the next time I saw you was at the bookstore at, at Notre Dame. And you, uh, I'm, I'm not gonna lie, you, you came up to me and you said, hey, Alex, I wouldn't have expected you to remember who I was, but you said, hey, Alex, I love what you do with Negro Leagues baseball. You know, as a boy, I, I used to watch the Indianapolis Clowns. Or I, I heard about the Indianapolis Clowns. I was a bad boy with them. I was a bad boy in Martin, yes. South Dakota for the Indi Now, that was the traveling Indianapolis Clowns. Oh, but... yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. They So, I don't know. You've always just treated me and everyone, and everyone I've known that has ever interacted with you has always been, of course, impressed by your level of acumen. And, uh, and again, your ability to tell a story, your tirelessness, but for me, it's your kindness, Len. And well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Connect with me on that and just remember, it's just, you make people feel special in that way. So I, I've always appreciated that. Well, I appreciate it. This is an industry that <clears throat> people will fight to get to the top, but I, I think you're right. You, you treat people the way that you would want to be treated. And I guess it was my upbringing, you know, that's... Um, and then just the the passion of Notre Dame. No, I don't do it for Nebraska fans. No. That's right. I won't be as kind. But no, it's um, it, I really appreciate the kind words, and it means a lot to me right now. Absolutely. Well, it will never be forgotten, and it wasn't lost on me then, and it's something that I I still carry with me now. Again, just kind of uh, approaching this kind of humbly, but just to just to be able to make your acquaintance and learn things from you has just been fantastic. And I am so appreciative of your time tonight, Len. I cannot wait for folks to hear this interview go irish <laughs> that's right go irish so we're gonna wrap up but stick with me i got a few thoughts here after the break 
right, I hope you enjoyed that conversation that I was able to have with esteemed Irish journalist Len Clark. As you kind of picked up probably pretty quickly, Len just has a gift for this. And I'm appreciative for him making some time for Onward to Victory. And I'd just like to share that none of this is possible without the support of the Consensus All-Americans, who are, of course, the very special individuals who contribute to the show monetarily. And the folks who have either contributed significantly in the past or are currently doing so include Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, and Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana, and Mike Johnson of Oak Park, Illinois. Thank you all. And if you enjoyed this interview and you want to join the ranks of the Consensus All-Americans yourself, please feel free to visit the virtual collection baskets at paypal.me slash onward to victory or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. And if you're not in a position to give, no worries. Like, subscribe, leave a review, share, Tell all your friends about it. Tell all your family about it as well. Uh, these things assure that the show will continue to grow here in its fourth year. So what's coming down the pike? Hey, it's 130 years ago this month that the famous Father William Corby was born and who just happened to have some very strong ties with the Irish Brigade. So we're going back to the American Civil War for the next episode. We're doing everything Irish Brigade. So be on the lookout for that coming later this month. And I'll wrap up now. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, friends, go Irish.